This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work, our weekly conversation about how we can help get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, for today's show on women in the news, including those key questions of what stories actually get told? How are they framed? And what does that mean for us as a community of readers? We're going to explore this today with one of Women at Work's absolutely favorite guests, Jessica Bennett. She's an award-winning journalist and the gender editor of the New York Times. Before I bring her on, I want to share a little bit of her background so you can understand why I am such a fan. Jessica Bennett has spent her career looking at social issues and culture through a gender lens, from the persistence of workplace inequality to the ripple effects of hashtag MeToo. As the New York Times' first ever gender editor, she leads a newsroom-wide initiative to expand global coverage of women and gender across platforms. She's also the author of the hilarious and essential best-selling book, Feminist Fight Club, A Survival Manual for a Sexist Workplace. Highly recommend it. Great gift to give. Um, Which I just learned has been translated into 14 languages, a podcast, and is being adapted for television, which I think is super exciting. I can't wait to tune in. Jessica began her career at Newsweek, where she was a staff writer and an editor. With two colleagues, she wrote a cover story documenting the little-known history of 46 women who sued the magazine for gender discrimination in 1970. That story became a book, The Good Girls Revolt, by Newsweek's first female senior editor, Lynn Povich, and later an Amazon series. Her work's been honored by the Society for Professional Journalists, the Newswomen's Club of New York, and the International Center of Photography. And it regularly prompts me to think about the experiences of other women in new and increasingly compassionate ways. So with that, let me say, Jessica, thank you for joining us at Women at Work. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, so I want to start with this question of first ever gender gender editor of the New York Times. That's not a a job you apply for with an internship out of college. How did this happen? (laughs) Nope. Um, And most people don't know exactly what it means. Uh, I usually like to tell people, you know, who ask, what is a gender editor? It's pretty much like a regular editor, but angry. <laughs> um, no, that's my line, but... It's a good one. Thank you. Thank you. Um, it, this was not something that I ever expected to be doing, and it's certainly not a job that existed even a couple of years ago. But I think that what we have realized and what my editors at the Times have realized before I was here was that we needed to do a better job of engaging women, engaging women readers, engaging women subscribers. And one of the ways that we thought we could do that was by hiring someone in this role to really focus on doing that and doing that across platforms. And so it was interesting because a lot of people thought that this job was the result of the election or a result of Me Too. But in fact, I'd been interviewing for it for a long time before (laughs) both of those things happened. But sometimes the New York Times moves a little slowly, not on the news, but on hiring. No, because to to anchor this for people in kind of our national timeline, it was announced on October 10th of 2017. So we were really... Um, And you and I had started talking in 2016 as the book came out and around the election. So whether the New York Times was slow or in a way, you know, the fates were um, bringing this all together. Yeah, it's it is a timely and important first. 
Yeah, I mean, and I began the job just a couple of weeks after the Harvey Weinstein story broke, was broken by my colleagues here at the Times. And so it was really coming into what, I don't know if we even recognized at the time, but was about to be a really changing world. Mm -hmm. And so there are a lot of challenges, but there was very much this moment of like just diving in to cover this historic moment that was happening. It's interesting because in so many cases, we wish that organizations would recognize that women are an important audience. And in this case, by putting you in a role because the Times realized that women's readership mattered, you were actually there at the moment that it was important for you to be there, it sounds like. Well, and at the moment that the culture began to really shift. I mean, I've I've sort of said when talking about this role again and again, like my job shouldn't have to exist. Um, We shouldn't need to have a gender editor. We shouldn't need to have someone focused on race. And yet we do, and we recognize that there are still gaps. So I will be successful in some sense when I when I work myself out of a job. <laughs> I was going to ask you that. Like, yeah. Does success look like you're out of a job? I mean, yes. You know, I'm sure if I'm successful, I will go on to do something else. <laughs> um, hopefully, fingers crossed. But, yeah, I don't think that these jobs, you know, should need to exist. But, like, we're pretty clear-eyed about the reality that, like, media was created by and for white men primarily. And so there are still some things, even at the most progressive organizations, that need to be corrected for. I also think that Me Too has done more for the way that we tell women's stories, the attention being paid to their stories, the investigative resources being put to telling their stories has really done more than I could have ever done as a single editor. So it was kind of this confluence of things where I was coming in at this moment where the culture was really really beginning to shift. Tell me more about... Um, what that means, the way that hashtag Me Too is affecting how we tell stories and which kinds of stories are getting told. Well, I think one of the things we realized and one of the things, you know, before I was in this role, just reading the coverage, you know, so my colleagues Jody Cantor and Megan Tuohy broke the Harvey Weinstein story, something that they've been working on for months and months and mm-hmm. months with the really full support of, of their editors. And it's rare that you get to spend months and months reporting a story. And it's also rare to be reporting an investigative piece where everyone keeps saying the same thing over and over again to you, which is, this is an open secret. Everyone knows this. Like, there's not a story here. And when you talk to them about it now, they say that they were just so surprised that people kept telling them this wasn't a story because everyone already knew. And so I think what has really shifted is that we are seeing a lot of these stories in a new way. We are seeing them in a new light, and we are believing the people who are coming forward. And so what Jody and Megan did, I thought, was so incredible on many levels. But one of the ways that I think it was so, so believable was that it was true investigative shoe leather reporting. You know, they were following a paper trail. They were corroborating every single witness. They were writing it super straight. Like nobody could misperceive this as an opinion piece Mm -hmm. or as something that had a particular point of view. They were reporting the facts and the facts really told this story. And I think that set the tone in a lot of ways for all that came after. 
Were they so diligent because of the sensitivity of the topic or because as women journalists, um, they could be perceived, it, it could be interpreted as being an opinion piece? I don't know if they thought that as women journalists, it would be perceived as opinion, but I think they were very smart and clear in knowing that this thing had to be bulletproof. Mm-hmm. Like there was not room for error here. <laughs> right. And every single aspect of it at the time i even remember thinking like gosh this is written so straight like it didn't have some of the detail and color that sometimes you see in more magazine style stories and then to hear them talk about it later how they truly you know labored over every word and editors went over every aspect of it and they made sure that they had crossed all of their bases and they knew that this could very easily be torn apart mm-hmm. and they couldn't leave room for that. And and I do think that, you know, journalism doesn't have a ton of experience reporting these types of stories. Like there just hasn't been a ton of work in this realm. And so in a lot of ways, I think they kind of set the stage and the tone for the way that this type of reporting should be done. And also th- their being impeccable um, seemed like it was extra important given that this was an reporting in a new area of information. Um, Like you said, it had to be bulletproof. And in order to both crack the story and not have it backfire on the women in it, it seemed like that diligence was both essential and humane. I think so. Um, So part of what this did was it made us see an entire industry and a dynamic at work differently. And part of it was also that it it has started a a, a sea change in our believing women and hearing women's experiences and giving them credit. Is that seeping into other areas of the news? You know, it's been interesting just to look at this from an editor perspective, because my job was to come in and to think about ways that we could better cover women's stories. So that meant across the newsroom, and that's really more than one person can possibly do. And there are a lot of people that think about this every day. But even just in the, I think I've been here almost two years now, in that time, the shift that we have seen in the types of storytelling at the Times, but also elsewhere, has been stark to me. There's mm-hmm. a lot of this type of storytelling where we are re-looking at past cases or retelling the stories of women or people of color who may not have had the voices to tell their stories on their own or who were left out of the coverage. Um, There's this way that we are kind of looking critically at the coverage in terms of things like bylines, in terms of things like who are the subjects of the stories, looking at some of the nuances around photography, looking at who is quoted in, in stories. Like these are conversations that I hear happening pretty broadly now that I did not hear two years ago. I want to pause and ask a question for a second. So as an editor, as the gender editor working across the newsroom, um, these things, bylines, subjects, nuances, photography, quotes, those are all things that you affect as an editor and that you're advocating for, yes? Mm-hmm. And so you're collaborating not just with other journalists but with designers. Who, who makes up your team? Who are the other people trying to bring this to life with you? Well, one of the really nice things about this role is that it crosses every department, truly. So I have a very tiny team. But the idea is that we are collaborating across sections. 
we purposely did not want gender to exist as like a traditional section of the newspaper where you open the paper and there's this one section that's like for women. We felt like that would be kind of recreating the women's pages, which were actual pages of mm-hmm. the newspaper in the, in the <laughs> 60s and 70s, where it was like the stories for women went here and it was typically fashion and style. We didn't want to do that and we didn't feel like stories about gender issues, about sexuality, about gender identity and, and simply about women should be sort of cordoned off into the, this one area. And so we really wanted to infuse every section of the report with this type of coverage. And so that means that sometimes I'm weighing in on, on stories or within departments that I'm not usually working closely with. But it also means that every department here, whether it's an art department or the sports desk, is responsible for thinking about this on their own. And so it's really been a true collaboration in the sense that I think everyone here is really on board. Um, You know, I get a lot of questions about, do you get pushback or do you get resistance internally? And the answer is mostly no. You know, people have been really receptive to this. They think it's really important. There are, you know, dozens of unnamed gender editors inside this building (laughs) who don't have the title but are actually doing the work. Um, And I think that that's really important because there's no way that I could do this. Well, it's a a testimony to you, but it's also a testimony of the culture of the times and the importance of the issue. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and my guest today is Jessica Bennett, the first gender editor at The New York Times. So, Jessica, when you're talking about this work going across the organization and intersecting with all the aspects of news and reporting in our society, um, it seems as if it's having an effect beyond engaging women readers. Because I know that, you know, I've been a lifelong reader of the New York Times, you know, since I was 10 years old every day. And my sweetheart, I see him seeing the world differently because he reads the Times too and he's exposed to different stories. Different things are coming up at our dinner table in our conversations with our kids. So is the newsroom feeling that impact? Because, I mean, we are at home. I think that this is sort of just the way that culture is changing, you know. It's... whether or not we have a gender editor, there are more women in leadership positions. There are people who look different from what the traditional makeup of leadership looked like. And there are changes that are infusing every aspect of the newspaper. You know, we have the first ever African-American executive editor now. We have a lot of women in leadership positions. I, I think that these things sort of quietly infuse into the daily coverage and they change the way that the coverage exists and it's not meant to be overt you know Mm -hmm. i didn't want people to suddenly say oh gosh well now there's this gender editor and everything's (laughs) different The, the idea is almost in some ways for you not to know what i have a hand in and to just slowly but surely see a shift that reflects the actual society that we are covering Right, just in the same way that the people who are working at the Times are reflecting that society. Exactly. And, you know, I get a lot of questions about, well, are you sort of like the diversity initiative or do you do hiring or are you part of HR? And the answer is no, I'm not. But 
you know, the fact of the matter is like those things actually do go hand in hand because so much of the way that we cover culture and the way that we cover news has to do with who is covering it mm-hmm. and who is covering it is a reflection of who we are hiring. And so while I'm not directly involved in, in hiring here, it, I do think that these things are connected. And also it, um, it resonates with what we know to be best practices in diversity and inclusion at large organizations, that it can't be just one initiative, that it has to be supported from the top, and that it's got to go across the organization and not be a side activity that happens on a Friday afternoon, but in the same way that you're working with editors and writers across the newsroom. Um, it's got to be comprehensive. It's almost like a plaid that's woven in from all directions. And that's what creates sustainable change or weaves a basket together that holds it. I like that way of putting it. And it was interesting to see once I got here, all of the different initiatives that actually were underway that just weren't public facing. And I think that what appointing someone in my role did even if I was totally ineffective in the actual job, was it said publicly to our readers and to our audience that this is important. Mm -hmm. And it was coming from the leadership. And so I think that sent a very powerful message. I want to back up to a minute because you were talking before about how part of what this is doing is it's prompting the Times as a whole to reconsider and reexamine not just the way that stories were told, but some of the actual stories themselves. And as you were describing that, um, the amazing piece you did on Monica Lewinsky was the first thing that popped to mind, um, and that you really reframed history with her. I know it's, it's part of an effort she's making, but talk to me about how you thought about that story at the beginning and um, what your thoughts were about it after it had been published. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I'm of the generation that grew up hearing that story. Um, I was in high school at the time that the Star Report came out. I remember sort of huddling by the lockers, reading it with friends. Like, this was like the first pornography. It was I had salacious. Ever read at the time, yes. Um, and. I remember Newsweek, where I would then have my first job printing this long excerpt. And I think I had that. Newsweek magazine, which I hadn't gotten from my parents. I don't know where it came from, but we were sort of passing it around and all reading it. And in some ways, that was like an education in sex a little bit for those of us who were like 16, 17 years Mm -hmm. old. And then, you know, I didn't think about it again for years and years and years. And I became a journalist. And then Monica Lewinsky wrote this essay for Vanity Fair. This was a few years back about the experience and about the shame that she had felt and about what, you know, her life had become since then, how she sort of couldn't live this down. And so I became very interested in in profiling her and in spending time with her and in seeing what her life was like and and ultimately was able to convince her to to allow me to do that. And it was just fascinating to see it from a modern day perspective. You know, I I read all those stories. I heard her called a slut. I remember the language used when people talked about her. I remember thinking that, you know, she had sort of brought this on. And to see it in my adult 2016 or whatever year it was light, that she was a 21-year-old intern, and this was the president of the United States, <laughs> and there was a power differential there. And 
it had all of these combinations of things where this was sort of like the first big internet story to break. It broke on the Drudge Report, and there was this whole oh, story Oh, I've forgotten about, all about that. Yes. Yeah, it broke on Drudge, and a man, Michael Isakoff, who I would then go on to work with at Newsweek, had the story for Newsweek, and they wouldn't print it because of some verifications that he didn't have. And so the the story was always that he had potentially leaked it to Drudge. I don't know if that's true, but ultimately Drudge wham with it and and then it spread from there and she became the butt of every late night joke and to then see her in her 40s you know she went on she got a master's degree she studied the london school of economics she's incredibly smart she's poised and how it just followed her everywhere and she couldn't get work and she you know hadn't had a relationship a serious relationship and how the way that young people today saw her was so different from the way my generation did at the time. And in that case, you know, that was a pretty traditional profile that I did. I spent a lot of time with her. I wanted to tell her story. She was preparing to give a TED talk about shame, the price of shame. And I, I wrote about it, but I think that what was different was seeing it through this lens of today of what we understand today about power and what we understand about sexual harassment and what we understand about this sort of gray area where it's kind of confusing and it may not be illegal, but it feels pretty uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And so that was, you know, that was a really rewarding piece to work on in the sense that it wasn't about gender or feminism overtly, but it was able to tell her story through a different lens. Yeah. And it was also rewarding to read. And when I said in the beginning of the intro, you know, your writing makes me more compassionate about other women's experiences. This was part of it. And I had been I had read the Vanity Fair article um, and I had heard the TED talk. And but I love that the New York Times, by reporting on this and by your own approach to reporting. But it was also a way of saying it was kind of a way of um, correcting the record and giving us the other view of this story that for so long had been told in a way that was only told from the from I think a male and judgmental perspective mm-hmm. so that it, and it wasn't just about harassment in the workplace and power but also the way that we see sexualized women and the way we sex, the way we see women's sexuality and the way we sexualize women and that she was also a victim of that right right and it wasn't you know, interestingly, it wasn't just men who were saying that at the time. Like she, I went back to a lot of the the feminist voices of the time, like Gloria Steinem and others, who really didn't support her, um, and who, you know, believed in what Bill Clinton was doing, and so they sort of let this slide in in a way that I don't think would happen today. Um, and then it was interesting to talk to younger women who said wow, you know, she's a hero. Like what she had, what she did and what she endured uh, is inspiring. And I don't, I don't think Monica had heard that for, for many years. No, and it's long overdue for her. You're listening to Women at Work here on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132, powered by the Wharton School. I am your host, Laura Zarrow, and my guest today is the amazing Jessica Bennett, the first gender editor at the New York Times, and as you can gather, one of my favorite journalists. Um, Jessica, so the other thing that is part of um, this kind of storytelling is also the way that it reminds me of how we held a president accountable for bad behavior to some degree, while totally 
humiliating and, you know, eroding this poor woman's life. Yet today we have a president who's done arguably worse to women, and yet no one's holding him accountable. I wouldn't say people aren't holding him too accountable. <laughs> I mean, I think that accountable. I, I think that, you know, it's interesting to think about what happened in terms of the 2016 election, the Me Too movement, and then what we're seeing now, which is this women's wave in Congress and this huge organizing of women who are running for office for the first time and galvanizing and going out in their communities. And all of these things, I think, are related. Mm -hmm. I think some of it is related to anger about the election and anger about the way that the president speaks about women and perhaps some sense of feeling a lack of control or a powerlessness Mm -hmm. that, that the votes didn't make the change. But then actually organizing and going out into the streets and marching and turning that into action. It, you know, this was the first time in, in my lifetime that I had seen my peers out marching, like not, they're not tweeting. <laughs> they're not <laughs> right. text messaging. Me. They are literally they're voting marching. with their feet. Right. Um, and, and then to see, you know, one step beyond that, some of those same people actually hunkering down and deciding to run for office. Um, so I think all of these things are, are related and, and perhaps connected to what some perceive as this lack of accountability. And there's certainly um, that kind of the fury, the desire to get involved and make change also seems like it's as much a byproduct of those particular moments in time. But as you were talking about before, what is um, it's almost like a, a coalition an energy building and coalescing the energy of that reflects the diversity at the time the diversity of the storytelling that's happening at the times your role as gender editor and that it's reflecting and fueling this momentum which is creating cultural change yeah i mean i do think it's what we're seeing and what we're witnessing is much broader than than journalism like you say this is about politics and it's about demanding change in in various spheres and it's about organizing and it's about the way that Hollywood is being held accountable for not meeting uh, the diversity that should be reflected Um, and some people demanding inclusion riders now Mm -hmm. and different organizations appointing people focused on issues like race and gender at their journalistic institutions. And, and I think it's even in the way that we're seeing advertising change, you know, brands like Gillette dealing with things like toxic (laughs) masculinity, like that is not a term that you could (laughs) say in a mean, not a gender studies course a few years ago. Um, so I think I think what we're seeing is is cultural change. Yes, on a large scale and um, certainly overdue. We need to take a short break, but stay with us. We're going to continue um, our discussion with Jessica Bennett and also discuss the various stories that she's telling that are both a reflection of and an impact on this culture at large in just a few minutes. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School on Sirius XM 132. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio. Here again is Laura Zarrow. 
Welcome back to Women at Work, our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, and my guest today is Jessica Bennett, gender editor at the New York Times, author of The Feminist Spike Club, and one of my favorite journalists. Jessica, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me. In the first half and in my introduction, part of what we were talking about is this critically important um, dynamic of what stories get told, how are they framed, and what that means for us as a community of readers. And you've been working on that in your role as the first ever gender editor at the Times, along with all the good folks there. Talk to me about how your work as a gender editor is dovetailing with your work as a journalist. Yeah, I mean, in a lot of ways, it's impossible to separate them, I guess. (laughs) Um, You know, I didn't begin my career planning on focusing my work on issues of gender or specifically on women, but it was the result of realizing in my own workplace that sexism still existed (laughs) and becoming very interested in how that, that had evolved and how my own workplace had adapted and adjusted. And then eventually focusing my lens on women. And so this was a a natural progression of that. But, you know, what I aim to do and what I've always aimed to do is is tell compelling narratives and tell compelling narratives that take on different forms, that are experimental, that use new types of innovation and technology and platforms. And so the way that I've used that in my current role is to think about how we can use those narratives and and technology and innovation to reach women. You know, I think that we know that no organization can really thrive if it's not engaging with half of the population. And (laughs) women readers are really important to the future of the New York Times and like they're important to the future of, of most institutions. And we know from our own data that we're not reaching them as much as we should be. So um, those compelling narratives, I see it in all of the stories that you write. And I should tell you, I don't go hunting for the Jessica Bennett stories. <laughs> it's more that as I'm reading, I'm like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. I'm like, oh, of course. Jessica Bennett wrote it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, and one of the things I found about the narratives that you write is that you often pick topics that um, you re- make me think about them differently, whether it's sororities or the Miss America pageant. Um, how are you picking these topics? It's a good question. I don't have a perfect formula. <laughs> Some of it is my own interest. Uh, you know, I have a tendency to kind of take these pop culture um, issues, something like sororities, um, of which I was not involved in when I was in college. I've sort of always hated and, and thought they were terrible and, and viewing it through a new light. Um, or looking at something like the Miss America pageant Mm -hmm. and realizing that the organization is actually really trying to change for this new era. Um, I just was working on a piece that hasn't come out yet about um, Playboy, the magazine. And, you know, what does it mean to be Playboy, the brand and the institution in a Me Too world? Like, do we still want naked women on the pages of our magazines? Like, who is their audience? So sort of taking these things that were part of the culture and part of the conventional wisdom for so long and and turning them on their head a bit. It it has, because I know that when I had the similar um, point of view, I 
I actually wouldn't apply to any colleges that had a sorority or any Greek life. I went to art school, so it wasn't hard. Mm -hmm. Um, But I looked at it with such disdain, and it took me a long time until I met women who found them deeply rewarding um, that I started to open up and look at the complexity of it. And your article did a lot of that for me. And same thing with the um, Miss America pageant. Um, Could you just, for the listeners who haven't had a chance to read it yet, um, give us a kind of short summary of what's going on there? Yeah, with with Miss America. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, let's see. Well, you may have heard that Miss America got rid of the swimsuit competition about a year ago, and so longtime Miss America fans were, you know, up in arms. So what is the pageant um, without a swimsuit competition? <laughs> you may, but actually, right? <laughs> but actually, this is part of a broader move to really modernize the organization, which is now run by Gretchen Carlson. Who's had her own experience with yes. sexual harassment. Exactly. Whose name you recognize because she sued Fox News and won. And when I first heard that, I was like, wait, Gretchen Carlson is now running Miss America. And she had been a You took a double take, America. too? <laughs> yes, I did. And I was like, why would she want to run this organization? Anyhow, so I went to the most recent competition, um, which is still on the boardwalk in Atlantic City, <laughs> New Jersey. And there's this famous story about the, in the 1960s, feminists protesting the Miss America pageant on the boardwalk and throwing all the instruments of female torture, which is what they called it, which was like <laughs> false eyelashes, girdles, high heels and bras, famously, into this trash can. Now, those feminists never actually burned their bras, but they had planned to. They, they couldn't get the right permits to burn their bras <laughs> in the end. But this is where the term in the 1960s, bra burning, originated. So these feminists had, like, fought against Miss America, and here we are decades, decades, decades later, and, like, the same thing is happening. But what Gretchen Carlson has tried to do is, is she calls it now Miss America 2.0, and she's tried to modernize the organization. You know, it's no longer a pageant. It's now a competition. There's not the swimsuit portion. You have to really have a cause. All of these women who I saw give their speeches during tryouts are incredibly accomplished. They're like biochemists and neuroscientists at Harvard who like have founded businesses and have 17 different awards and, you know, like far more impressive than any of my friends, let's just say. (laughs) And, but here they are competing for Miss America. So, so the piece that I did was looking at, you know, can an organization like that change? Does an organization like that have a place in 2019 and sort of getting at some of the tension there. I have to recommend the article because I think you did a, a beautiful, I kept looking for the gotcha and the story. And as I read on, I was just like, wow, they really are trying to change. I don't know if they're there yet, but yeah. you know, you can see the sincerity of it. it. It reinforces for me that this kind of reporting is creating um it, it's a, you're both reporting on the way that society's trying to change in order to inspire young girls and reflect what girls and women are capable of and um, make it evi- and and put this into the ethos so that women everywhere can see this as a new thing to aspire towards. Like I was thinking about 18 around the world. Um, it seems like that's a potent, potent way that you're using your journalism to inspire and also help us see another way of defining women. Is that a fair way to understand it? 
Yeah, I mean, a lot of what I try to do is, you know, there's this saying in journalism, show, don't tell. Mm-hmm. And so, like, I could go on the speaking circuit and talk about all the things that we should be doing and the ways that we should be doing it, but I actually think it's much more effective to show people. And so we did this project a few months back called This is 18. And the idea was that we were going to profile 18-year-old girls around the world on every continent, except for Antarctica, sorry, Antarctica, it was too hard to get there, um, and find out what life was like for an 18-year-old girl. And, and we wanted to focus on girls because girls have specific challenges. And the way that we would normally do a project like this at the Times is that we would tap our many amazing, award-winning, Pulitzer Prize-winning photojournalists who are all over the world to go photograph these women. But what we wanted to do was try something a little bit differently, was actually having other girls, other young women in these girls' communities photograph them themselves. And so it was a very complicated process involving a lot of, like, Snapchatting with with teenagers um, to get (laughs) their whereabouts and, and find out their availability. But we actually had every one of these 18-year-old girls be photographed by another girl in her community. And the idea was that we wanted to showcase them through a girl gaze, <laughs> so through the female lens. And the, the project we ended up producing as a digital zine, which was something that the Times had never done before. Um, zines were popular in my youth <laughs> as, a, as a way to make kind of like cheap magazines right. cut up and they were sort of punk and cool. Um, and so we recreated that for uh, the millennial era. <laughs> um, and and we wanted to tell the stories of, of these young women. I keep switching between the word girl and young women because it actually, 18 is that age where you are really, truly in between the two. You it's have true. some rights, um, legal rights, but a lot of times you're still living with your parents or you're still at home. And to see through these girls' own eyes what life was like for them. And um, it, it really did show a range of realities. Because as you noted online, it was in 12 time zones, 15 languages, featured 21 subjects and 22 photographers. It was a lot of coordination. We'll just yes. say that. We had an amazing <laughs> um, millennial project manager um, who also, was the main communicator with everyone. Well, kudos to that person. Yes. Um, it's also really beautiful and deeply engaging. It's a very rewarding viewer experience, so I encourage you to go online and check it out. Um, and it, it just as a way of, like you said before, how can you leverage innovations, new technologies to give us compelling narratives? And the use of image in it is really potent, Jessica. Thank you so much. Yeah, the, the images were hugely compelling. We did a social campaign around it. We're, we just showcased the images at something called Photoville in Los Angeles, which is a big photography exhibit. So it's one of those things where we're trying to tap in a lot of different mediums. Um, it will be produced as a coffee table book that comes out in November as well. So taking these ideas and then figuring out ways that we can reach different audiences through the types of distribution models. I think it's brilliant. This is Women at Work, and I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. I am talking with Jessica Bennett, the first ever gender editor at The New York Times and the author of my beloved Feminist Fight Club. Um, it's we're Women at Work here on CR6M132. So, Jessica, well... 
this is one project, you know, looking at This Is 18 and bringing to life these women on this, these people on the cusp between girlhood and womanhood. Um, you're also doing justice to people long past in a way um, that feels long overdue. Talk to me about the Obituaries Initiative. Yeah, so this is a project that we're, we've called Overlooked. And the idea is to write the obituaries for women who never got them, but probably should have. And over time, this has evolved into a weekly column, and it has expanded beyond just women. It now includes any remarkable person that deserved an obituary but didn't get one. But the way that this really evolved was we realized that there were a lot more men who'd received obituaries and continue to receive obituaries in the New York Times. We pulled the numbers. We found out it was actually really a lot more men. <laughs> most of them white, and looking up through this sort of serendipitous way of coming up with names or recognizing names or people suggesting names and then looking through our archives to see if they ever had received an obituary, discovering that people like Ida B. Wells, the journalist and suffragist, never received an obituary in the New York Times. Emily Warren Roebling, who was the woman behind the man who designed the Brooklyn Bridge, he fell ill. He was the engineer, and she single-handedly had to finish the job but never really got credit for it. She had been appeared alongside him in, in dozens of articles, but she never received an obituary while her husband did. And then, you know, people like Sylvia Plath, Emily Dickinson, like these incredible names that are well-known, and how is it that they could have not received an obituary in the New York Times, which has been publishing obituaries since 1851? Right, and these are towering figures in literature, culture, science. Exactly, and so this was one of those things, again, where it was like, okay, well, we could criticize ourselves for not doing this, or we could actually try to fix the problem through narrative. And so what we decided to do was go back and write the obituaries for those people and publish them. And so the project launched um, over a year ago with women. We chose 14 women for the launch. And then it has continued as a project out of the obituaries team where we publish new ones every week. We did a huge compilation for Black History Month, mm -hmm. and this is ongoing. Um, and it was just announced actually yesterday that this is one of the projects that the Obamas are going to be developing as part of their new Netflix package. Oh, that's amazing. Um, Congratulations. So scripted series, which is very exciting. That is very exciting. I want to back up to the moment of origin, though, because I think those moments where an idea emerges and it gets traction um, deserve to have a, a light shined on them so we can understand how not to lose them when they happen in our own worlds. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about those early moments of, of really when this got recognized and who sold the idea to whom. So I had just started, and an editor on the obituaries desk, Amy Padnani, had reached out to me for coffee. Um, and so we got coffee, and prior to the coffee, I'd been saying to what was about to be my boss, but I hadn't actually started my job yet, um, wouldn't it be cool if if we could actually correct some of the obituaries or, or write obituaries for the women who never got them or so, something? So she was aware of it from the moment you came on the scene. Well, so it turns out Amy had been collecting a names of 
exactly these women, and she'd been calling it overlooked. So she had this spreadsheet that she hadn't shared with a ton of people, but it had names of people that she had come across in her role as an editor on the obituary section of people who she just couldn't believe had never received an obituary. And so we teamed up to put this project together. And I think, you know, people, sometimes these ideas, people know immediately that it's a good idea. And I think with this one, you know, people were very excited and and supportive. However, then the question was raised, okay, well, you know, how transparent do we want to be about the numbers, about how many of the obituaries have historically been devoted to women? You know, it's easy because we know we're basically half of the population. So, like, technically (laughs) we should be getting half of the obituaries. Yeah, there's a useful Um, benchmark there. And then... You know, even when we looked at the more recent numbers, they still weren't that great. And so we had people digging into the data to actually find out what the percentage was. And there was a, you know, there was an internal discussion about do we want to reveal that information? And I think we really felt like, and this is ultimately what we did, that transparency was critical to doing this. Like Mm -hmm. we, we needed to show that there was a problem and be open about it and show that we were trying to correct for it. And so we did in the introduction to the to the piece, we said exactly what the percentage was over how many years. And we talked about how we were trying to change that. And so it's something that, you know, we've been tracking since then. Um, the obituary section in modern times, you know, week over <laughs> week, has gotten a lot better. Well, I appreciate that it's gotten a lot better, but because you actually, it, it seems like there were several stages to this. One was that Amy saw this and was yes. quietly accumulating this information. So she was, you know, it was simmering. She had this idea, but it needed a partner. It needed an advocate to get to get some traction. And by having you in that position, you were able to help make that happen. And I think that, you know, when I said earlier that there, I may be the only formal gender editor in the New York Times, <laughs> but there are a lot of unnamed gender editors at this place. You know, there are people toiling away in various parts of this organization who are keeping lists like that and really putting great work towards making sure that we put out the best report we can on a day-to-day basis. And so, yes, in that sense, this was sort of a perfect partnership because mm-hmm. she'd done a lot of the work and I was able to advocate for it and and we could partner to produce it. I also think there are a couple of things in this that transfer to almost any workplace. So I want to kind of bring them into high relief, if you don't mind. Mm -hmm. So one of them is that we'll often hear that there's somebody who sees that something's wrong in an organization or there's an opportunity that can be seized. By having somebody who was in a position of authority and influence, um, it was able to come to life. One thing was that you had the blessing of the organization Mm -hmm. so that you could take one of those quiet gender advocates and, and bring them into prime time. But the other thing, which was equally important, is that you didn't just say, yeah, we can tell there's a problem because it's so obvious. You measured it and you held yourselves accountable, not only for the what was overlooked in the past, but for the pattern of decision making that was unfolding on a daily basis. Right. And, you know, I know you have read my book and this is part of the reason why I'm such a fan of yours as well. Data. (laughs) Yes. Data so important. Yes. Um, and I try to present it with everything I do because, you know, you can make a compelling 
anecdotal or emotional case for something, but it's never going to be as compelling as if you can prove it with numbers. Absolutely. You can't manage what you don't measure and you'll have a sense of it, but you won't really know. Like I went up a pant size. I didn't know that was really 15 pounds. <laughs> you got to measure these things. But quite, right. but quite importantly, by measuring it, you could really see what the problem was. And then you knew what kind of effort was necessary to close the gap and solve it. And that also is enables you to figure out how do you mobilize your work in order to get to the desired goal as to, instead of just leaving it up to chance. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And and for us, it's like there's the measurement of two things. There's the measurement of the product itself, how many of the obituaries are devoted to women. But then we could also see how well each of these new obituaries we were writing were performing with women readers. And that's one of our goals as well. So we could see, you know, were these attracting more female readers? How long were they spending on sites? Were they reading to the bottom of the article? Were they sharing the article? Like all of these little data metrics we can see to understand our audience. And the other thing that you're modeling for other organizations is the transparency, is that as an organization, you owned it, your special responsibility to the communities that you serve and how you were going to approach change. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, certainly no institution is perfect, but I really do believe in transparency. Well, it's also without it, nobody, it's like nobody's perfect, but hopefully we're ever better. Yeah. And that's how you get there. So speaking of how do we get there? How do we make the change happen? Um, talk to me about the New Rules Summit. Oh, my God, I just discovered it and I'm dying to go and, you know, no tickets oh, are available. Oh, okay. Well, I'm sure we can resolve that for you. <laughs> um, Great. Um, so the New Rules Summit um, is the Times Women's Conference, and it began in September. Um, so I was part of the planning of it. So this is one of those ways that my job is very cross-functional in that <laughs> one day I'm writing a story about Miss America, and the next day I'm um, helping to produce a women's conference. Um, but it is happening on June 12th and 13th. The idea is that you know, in the wake of Me Too, we want to rewrite the rules of leadership. And so we came up with the concept of the new rules. And so it's very tactical in a sense, something that is near and dear to my heart, which is part of the reason why I wrote my book, because I felt like we kept talking about all the problems of the lack of women in leadership and all of these various issues, but nobody was providing solutions. So the conference is really meant to be solutions driven and provide tactical ways that we can all work toward equality in our own environments. And when I read about it, Jessica, it seemed like, of course you're doing this. You have to do this. <laughs> I, I, mean, so. I mean, apparently everyone has to have a women's conference these days. So <laughs> we're no exception. But yes, <laughs> I also believe in it. But um, I think it's also that you're, you're doing it in a special way. Um, that's trying to, as I understand, that it's not just that you're trying to propose concrete solutions, but to publish those results so that they can be disseminated and adapted and supported. Yeah, so that's the very exciting part is that, of course, we think of our live events as live journalism in a way, so there's always a published component to that. And so a lot of the takeaways from all of these leaders and experts who will appear is that we put them into print. So, so tell me about how that works, because I don't know if you know this, but I also wear a lot of hats, and one of them mm -hmm. is I plan a big conference every year. So as you're thinking about this, we think of you know conferences. There are people on the stage, people in the audience. Sometimes it's a keynote. Sometimes it's an interview. Sometimes it's a panel. What form is this taking that's going to help to generate the solutions? So it's a series of speeches and panels and fireside chats, and then in between them are these 
tactical groups. So these are sort of where you sit down in smaller format and you actually talk through some of the solutions. And so what we did last year was we actually had reporters at each of these so that they could be taking notes on what the solutions were because oftentimes, as we know, the, the most profound thing gets said and then not written down. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and so then we figured out how to formulate those into an editorial package. So we'll be doing some of that again this year, but we've also done some pre-work in the sense that we've looked at a few of the topics we want to get at and we've asked experts to provide their own guidance on on how to deal with some of these things, whether it be imposter syndrome or, you know, the specific challenges of negotiating while female or avoiding burnout. It sounds like it's this um, delicious combination of college without the homework and a think tank. <laughs> That's a lovely way of putting it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I welcome. will use that with your permission. I credit. Fully granted. Fully granted. So if um, people want to hear, um, find out about the what everyone learns from the summit, when do you mm-hmm. expect that stuff to be published? You know, I should probably have a more specific answer for you. Last year we did it the week after. This year we may do it in tandem. But I will tell you the easiest way to get all of the news about what we're doing through our gender work is to subscribe to the In Her Words newsletter at the New York Times. It's called In Her Words, and it gives a summary of everything that we're working on each week. It's great. I get it every week. I just love it. Thank you. And my daughter loves it, too. I share it with her. Oh, (laughs) good. So aside from in her words, Jessica, where else can people find you, find the stuff that you're writing, um, and learn more about all these ideas? Um, Great question. And I wrote a whole chapter about self-promotion, so I should be prepared for the answer. (laughs) But now I'm blanking. Um, No, let's see. You can follow us on Instagram at NYTGender. You can subscribe to the In Her Words newsletter. Um, I am Jessica Bennett on Twitter and Instagram, and you can check out my book at feministfightclub.com. I think that you did a pretty good job there. Thank you. Can I also add to it that I highly recommend you go to NewYorkTimes.com backslash by backslash Jessica Bennett and get a really great listing of a bunch of her fabulous articles. Jessica, thank you for coming back to Women at Work. I so love it when you're with us. Thank you so much for having me back. If you have a question about anything you heard on today's show, you can email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Follow us on Twitter at BizRadio132, me at Laura Zarrow. And you can get the podcast, too, just search for women, ampersand work, no spaces, under podcasts and iTunes. Thank you to my beloved Patty Hall, to Jeffrey Simmons, to Michelle Abramov. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you've been listening to Women at Work. To her inside And we'll shine Yes, we'll shine We will shine We will For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.